Welcome back to the Super Sapiens podcast, where we explore Super Sapiens metrics, the app features and experience, and how Super Sapiens around the world are driving the next step in human performance evolution. Homo Sapiens, meet Super Sapiens. Think about the big picture here and go, am I going to be doing this sport for the rest of my life? No, but do I need my bones to support me for the rest of my life? Yes maybe a period of time of very heavy lifting uh weights could be the best thing that you actually do good morning good afternoon good evening and welcome to the super sapiens podcast i'm your host zylan fanake and joining me now is my co-host david lipman david why is this podcast such a special one to us personally well we're recording in the same hotel not in the same room we didn't have the equipment for that but we are in the same hotel uh, i'm at team nova Nordisk camp with you uh, first time we met in person in two years of working together, which has been really good. So it's been good to do some training together, spend some time together. And uh, yeah, it's been awesome to be in camp with you all and uh, yeah, on your territory, mate. I've done my best to meet you in person over the years. I planned a trip to London where you live. You ran away. When I arrived at camp, you said you were going to be here, but you were far away out on a six hour bike ride in a vehicle following professional cyclists going to extreme lengths not to see me again but finally I tied you down and we met in person I'm joking though but you um you were following the riders that day on a six-hour ride can you talk a little bit about what you are doing here at camp obviously Super Sapiens is now an official partner to Team Novo Nordisk we made that announcement a couple of weeks ago so can you tell me about what the research project is that you are working on here yeah, so our science team tries to uh, support many researchers and then obviously be part of lots of research as well. And so we are researching in the diabetes space now. And so we are trying to look at the impact that having or not having visibility on the head unit of glucose has in these riders with type 1 diabetes. So our thought is it likely improves how they feel about things, uh, perhaps they're fueling maybe their insulin use. And, uh, and that'll reflect in their glucose over a couple of days, but we're trying to find it out. So uh, that's the research we're doing. I was following in a car for six hours, collecting gel packets from each of them uh, or whatever they ate. It wasn't all gels. Um, and so, yeah, picked up all of that, did all the carbohydrate calculations. So, you know, we put something out on social media around this. So make sure you're following, you know, Team Nova Nordisk, uh, Super Sapiens Diabetes and Super Sapiens, if you want to see that. I'm not sure exactly where it'll go out, but um, it will go out across one of those or all three of those perhaps. So yeah, that's what we're looking at. We're trying to show what we think it's going to show that people are a little bit more confident, a little bit less worried uh, when they can see their glucose continuously on their head units, rather than being able to having to pull out their phone or something like that to check their glucose. We think maybe they'll use a little bit less insulin if they use any at all. And we think perhaps their carbohydrate intake will be uh, a little bit more measured and perhaps it'll all reflect in their glucose, but that's what we're here researching, trying to find it out. You must be loving this because there's the science angle to it, the data angle to it, but also being in a high performance environment it ticks so many boxes for you personally. Uh, yeah, I mean, I enjoy these environments because I enjoy observing culture and I enjoy observing what the best are doing. So it's, it's quite interesting for me to see what that's like from a, you know, in-person perspective, looking at the different, um, nationality cultures within the team has been interesting, you know, looking at the relationships of the mechanics and the riders and, you know, the DSs and all that stuff. It's yeah, it's been fascinating to see. I mean, on some level, all professional athletes are the same. 
team sport, endurance sport, uh, you know, different countries, it's all been pretty similar in some regards and then in some ways are different. So the guys have been super welcoming. Uh, they've been pretty happy to help us with our research, which has been great. So thanks to them on that. And uh, yeah, it's been a it's been a fun environment. Yeah, thanks for that. And as Dave mentioned, keep an eye on the Super Sapien social channels. We'll be putting out some behind the scenes contact. We're currently filming some stuff um, and bringing you a closer look into what this is and yeah, publishing the research in due course. So make sure to follow Super Sapiens on all social media platforms. Right, let's get to this week's guest. This was a good one. I didn't know Scott before this. You kept mentioning him over a few months, David, so I was very intrigued to dig into his story, and it did not disappoint at all. Today we're talking to Scott Tyndall, co-founder and chief nutrition officer at Fuelin. Scott spent most of his career in professional sports. He served in roles as the head of performance, nutrition and physiotherapy for a number of teams, including the Toronto Maple Leafs in the NHL, Team Oracle USA Sailing for the America's Cup, several professional rugby teams like Leicester Tigers, Harlequins, as well as the Paralympics working with blind wrestlers. Scott currently coaches professional triathletes, executives, and age group endurance athletes on how to perform their best. He co-founded Fuelin to simplify the complex world of sports nutrition to help more athletes and individuals around the world live healthier lives and perform their best. Scott holds an MSc in Sports and Exercise Medicine from the Queen Mary University of London, a BSc in Physiotherapy from the University of Sydney, and a postgraduate diploma in Sports and Exercise Nutrition, IOPN and IWSN. He's an Ironman finisher, a recent sub-three-hour sub 30 marathon runner, and pickles his own vegetables. Scott is a father of two, lives in the third best state in Australia, and is the only podcast guest to send us a reminder of the episode. <laughs> Scott, welcome to the Super Sapiens podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me, and uh, that is dead set. The best introduction I've ever heard. Oh, glad you enjoyed it. Thanks to David. All credit to I, David. I like. I like the. Uh, I like that. I got a, a snippet of the start, but the latter part was withheld just purely uh, for shits and giggles. So, thank you. Yeah, it's the the last part. We usually try and make an intro for the guests or for the, the listeners and future guests listening. It's usually like something that's a bit more personal, a bit funnier to try and break some ice and, and get the the vibe rolling. And uh, yeah, after I got the text message yesterday saying like, you've got an appointment with Scott tomorrow morning. I was like, geez, really? That's, that's nice. And then I saw this morning, I saw you pickling some vegetables. So we thought uh, we thought we would go with that and, and bring that in. So welcome and, uh, and thanks for coming. We really appreciate having you. Yeah, I like that. Uh, yeah, the pickles. I've uh, I've just recently got into pickling and uh, trying to do fermented foods. That was actually batch number two of the pickles, which actually worked really well. Uh, the first crack at sauerkraut was a disaster, and I'm refining my method again. So, batch two is coming, and it wasn't Instagram worthy. Yeah, no, I get that. <laughs> I used to uh, when I lived in Australia, I brewed my own kombucha, which was really easy in summer. It took about a week because of the heat. Uh, and in winter, took about eight weeks. So, uh, yeah, it's I, I feel the fermented foods thing from you. Um, but let's go, I guess, your background in physio probably piqued some interest because most people who, who know you already would know you as uh, someone from nutrition. So, like, talk us through your academic journey. How did you go from physio to into nutrition and, and why? 
the journey from physio to nutrition really came as a result of the um, the masters at Queen Mary because at that point in time uh, we were studying with doctors and it was the first I think or first or second cohort to actually go through uh, this sports exercise medicine master's program and obviously it was uh, differing differing modules and one of those modules was uh, nutrition and it was you know for me it was just a, a huge sort of insight into the possibilities of what nutrition could do for athletes, especially when we're looking at, at that point in time where I was mainly focused on was injury. And so just learning more about, I guess, nutrition's impact on the injured athlete, it really piqued my interest. And sadly, I think at the undergraduate level, you don't learn anything about that yet. You really, it should be taught because the reality is if you don't get your nutrition right, then that injury is really going to suffer. And I guess, what I then started to put together was obviously at that point in time, uh, going and working at Leicester Tigers uh, in sort of a high performance uh, environment, you had nutrition experts there along with strength and conditioning coaches and then the physiotherapy department. And, you know, as much as you'd like to think that you were, you know, magic hands and getting these guys, you know, back onto the field in record times, the reality is you had a team around you and, that team, including the nutrition expert, no doubt accelerated the return to play. And so I guess, you know, I started to learn and, and read a lot more around nutrition. And in the end, it's actually probably a lot more interesting than physiotherapy. And there's a lot more sort of, uh, I guess, research going on within the nutritional space. And so I just got more and more into it and then decided to do postgraduate studies. And, uh, you know, as as luck would have it, when I was offered the job with uh, Oracle Team USA for the America's Cup, uh, the role that was offered to me was head of physio and team nutritionist. And that sort of was, I guess, the, the start of that transition, that graded transition into the world of nutrition as a full-time profession. Scott, I love that. It's more of a holistic approach, and I'm a firm believer in that. Um, would you say that is less common and why do you think that is because i'm a firm believer in like nutrition almost be good nutrition almost being the foundation for health and setting you up for everything but in various medical fields and david will have a, as a medical doctor will have a lot of opinions on this nutrition seems to be one thing that's sort of shunted to the side and you know it's always like um the symptoms that's uh, sometimes treated and not often the root of the problem and i think nutrition can add such an important play such an important role so yeah my question is like, is why is, is it less common and why is it less common to have that approach, like a more holistic approach? Look, uh, I, don't, I don't know the, the reasoning why it's taught in, you know, like this silo approach, you know, from physiotherapy, we're taught very much, uh, you know, from a whole body systems, you know, whether it be musculoskeletal, neurological, uh, cardiopulmonary and whatnot, but the idea of how nutrition can impact any of those differing areas that physiotherapists deal with, it's just not really covered. Um, whether it is now, you've got to remember, I went through physiotherapy a long time ago, so hopefully uh, the undergraduate program has changed, but probably not given that I hear, you know, very similar things with the medical degrees is that, yeah, it's like, I mean, nutrition might be a side note, but so is musculoskeletal, uh, you know, examination and therapy in terms of what a doctor 
learns from what I understand. I'm sure David could give uh, better insight into that as well. So I think, you know, there's a lot of talk of like medicine 2.0, medicine 3.0 at the moment due to various books and things like that and certain influences. And look, I don't disagree. I think the system's pretty broken. Uh, I think that's evident by what we're seeing in the world with, you know, you know, unbridled rates of, you know, obesity, of type 2 diabetes, um, you know, cancers aren't getting any less, are they? Cardiorespiratory disease, heart attacks, you know, it's all sort of blowing out of control. So the system as it stands isn't working. I think that's pretty clear. Um, how how we go about changing that, I guess uh, you guys are trying to do that, aren't you? So Yeah, I spent... So just to touch on that for people, we got one week of lower limb musculoskeletal anatomy, the whole lower leg, which I effect, which I effectively taught my my peers at the time because I had a good handle on it. We got one lecture and, and they were all struggling a little bit. Uh, but but the the nutrition and, and physical activity side of things is the same at medical schools. Like we got a little bit of nutrition. I actually, when I was in medical school, did a bunch of research on trying to prove that we needed to teach more exercise as medicine in medical schools. It's actually what I did as a sort of solo endeavor. Uh, needless to say, it didn't end up changing what the Australian Medical Council thought. So despite the fact that, you know, I, I won't go into the research, but suffice to say, it, it looked like you'd think it would look. But um, well, back to I, I you, Scott. That, I guess that leads into, I mean, you can talk about like, yeah, you look at the recommendations at the moment from like a World Health Organization standpoint, and you look at what dietetics, dietitians are still being told to recommend in terms of like protein consumption if we're going to i know probably we'll talk more about carbs we get you know and we might talk about this but like look at these recommendations and look at the plethora of research coming out to do with you know muscle protein synthesis and the ways in which you can manipulate this through nutrition and it's like why is this taking so long to change in the upper echelons of you know policy and uh, legislation and you know i'm not in that world but i i struggle to understand why it is taking so long now that there is so much overwhelming research coming out about you know whether we talk about protein and and carbohydrates you know it's and i'm sure looking at david that's what we will talk about so anyway yeah yeah i think I, you know, you've been in a high performance environment. We had a chat a, a little while ago as stemmed this and, you know, high performance isn't for everybody. It's an uncomfortable environment. And I think to stay up with, um, to stay up with research is uncomfortable. It's difficult. You have to change your mind. You have to be willing to change things and feel wrong. And most people are probably happier being comfortable. So I think part of the hesitance is just people who are happier saying the same thing and giving out the same pamphlet rather than, updating things and we're going to touch on the paper that was released recently that showed no upper limit of uh protein intake uh you know i don't know you guys got a webinar coming up it'll have because of where we're recording this that will have already happened uh so people yeah. should go back and listen to it but uh yeah we'll talk a little bit about that but i guess to put a bit of a bow on this like how did you get into physiotherapy to start with and then we can sort of go from there because that sort of speaks to your origin story and then we, we can go from there yeah um a physio. Well, the honest truth is my best friend in high school was applying to get into physio and I, I knew I was going to get marks for uh, to get in. And I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds pretty good. I'd spent a lot of time with physio because I'd been a rugby player and probably spent quite a lot of time getting treated uh, and treatment from physiotherapists who I re had utmost respect for at the time. And I thought, you know what, this is a pretty cool 
obviously I didn't have great insight into the actual, uh, the full picture of physiotherapy, but I thought, you know what, physios are good people. Seems like a pretty reputable type of occupation. You know what? I might give that a go and it sort of fits with rugby. I'm going to do that. So that's why I signed up. There wasn't too much thought process behind it, to be honest. Um, and talk to us about London. How did you end up in London from there? Well, I met an English girl in Australia and, uh, you know, fell in love, all those sorts of uh, stories that I'm sure uh, everyone can relate to and uh, followed her across the across uh, the other side of the world. And uh, we lived together in London for a few years before uh, that all came to an end. And I decided, you know what, London's pretty good fun. Uh, there was a world of opportunity in London at the time. Uh, this is back like 2003. Sadly, we was, lost the Rugby World Cup the year I got there. So that was very annoying. Uh, but it, London was just buzzing and it was just great. And you know, I, I did sort of locum jobs and things like that. And then I actually worked at London Bridge Hospital uh, in the um, outpatient department, in the sports department, uh, sports physiotherapy department. And that's where they gave me the opportunity, actually. And they paid for my master's, uh, which was really remarkable at the time and was amazing. And it was just part of the job. And they were very big on CPD and uh, my manager at the time, Katie, she encouraged myself and uh, one of the other physiotherapists to sign on for this master's program. And we went through it. And yeah, thankfully, I mean, that was a huge turning point because that job, I, uh, I met a good friend at my, in my master's and uh, Dan Lewenden, who is actually now head of performance for Man City. And uh, he at the time was working for uh, Northampton Saints in rugby. And so he put me forward for the job with Pat Howard at Leicester Tigers. And, and so it all sort of snowballed from there. So, you know, it's sort of sliding doors moments and one door opens and one door closed sort of, sort of opportunities. Yeah. I uh, very much hear that. I, I know those feelings well and those situations well. And so which door slid and, and how did you end up back in Oz? What brought you back? Well, after 13, what, 13 and a half years in, uh, in England, I, I got offered the role with uh, the America's cup. And that thankfully was in Bermuda, which was pretty cool. So I got to move to Bermuda, which if anyone knows is, I think it's regarded as the most isolated island on earth. Uh, so yeah, I got to move there, live there for what, three, three and a half years, I think it was three and a half. Yeah. And uh, just unbelievable experience, uh, an epic group of guys uh, to work with just a completely different environment working with professional sailors. And obviously my idea of sailing was very different to what it ended up being. Uh, you know, these guys trained the house down. I, I will say that, um, you know, I, I was fortunate enough also to work with uh, men's and uh, women's lightweight, uh, the GB rowing team when I was as, as a physio and I have so much respect for rowers. <laughs> I mean, their work ethic and their, the way they train and, obviously for very little financial incentive is just unbelievable. And I would say like the sailors obviously got paid a lot more than the rowers, but their work ethic was phenomenal. And, you know, I, I just think uh, I compare those guys and their work ethic to maybe like the guys from uh, the Maple Leafs and, you know, two differing sports and certainly two differing pay packets, but uh, certainly two differing work ethics as well. Yeah. Skill, skill sports are often, uh, lend themselves to uh, differing work ethics from uh, sort of um, more endurance 
physical capacity sports, let's just say. Yeah, I think so. And and that's, you know, honestly, the the transition then from like, you know, the sailors to the hockey players to then into Ironman. Like, I think that's why I love Ironman. I love triathlon because just you see what these athletes go through and what they put their bodies through and, and how they're so focused from age grouper to professional athletes, just how focused these a lot of these athletes are. And I, I think it's it's truly remarkable uh, what what effort and what time they put into a sport that, you know, yes, there is changes obviously occurring to the financial rewards to this sport now. And I think it's a very exciting time to be involved in triathlon. But up until, you know, the last few years, that hasn't been the case. And certainly when I started working with Sarah Pian Piano, you know, the pay packets weren't there and Sarah, you know, was a sponsored athlete, professional athlete, but it wasn't like she was rolling in cash as a result of the sport. Um, you know, today's environment of what these athletes are now lucky enough to be in, I think, and it's great because they, they do deserve to be paid in, in the way that they are. Scott, you must have such a wealth of knowledge having worked across so many different sports, um, contact sports, endurance sports, etc. And maybe let's get deeper into your work. Um, we spoke about nutrition earlier and how we believe that can help athletes. Like, what are some of the commonalities across the board, across the different sporting disciplines? Like, how, let's talk about injury for in, interest's sake. Um, you know, how can, what role does nutrition play in injury? And would you, and, you know, do you see that across the board? Doesn't matter the sports. Yeah, it's, uh, it certainly plays a huge role. And I think one of the biggest mistakes a lot of athletes make when they do get injured is to immediately restrict calories and total energy intake. And especially if you've got, you know, what we would classify as a catastrophic injury. So maybe a broken bone or a ruptured ACL or something like that, um, or a shoulder dislocation. Um, yeah, you don't want to be cutting calories in that early period because your body is ultimately trying to heal itself and repair. And, you know, resting metabolic rate will go up. Is that because they, they're scared of putting on weight while they're not being as active as normal? Correct. So, you know, the immediate fear is, oh, God, I'm going to get fat because I'm not doing anything. And so they cut calories and inadvertently that's probably going to be detrimental to that early, you know, acute phase of healing. And, and you know, you're not talking about keeping caloric uh, surplus up for an extended period of time. Uh, but certainly in that you know, probably that first week, you don't have to be thinking about cutting back on what you're doing. Like probably eat eat at least as much as you were with the training volume or even a little bit more. I mean, there's some really cool research if you're going in for orthopedic surgery or something like that, actually doing a carbohydrate load prior to surgery and really aiming for that, sort of, you know, minimum of eight grams per kilo body weight up to 12 grams per kilo body weight of carbohydrates like you would for, say, an Ironman race or certainly a race lasting over two hours um, has really positive impacts on the short-term outcome and probably the long-term outcome of that orthopedic surgery. And, you know, there, there's a really good takeaway for anyone who's uh, unfortunately suffered an injury. And I got a message today from a good mate. Um, who sounds like he ruptured his ACL in Japan skiing. So I'll be talking to him about some of the recovery uh, techniques. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's just a very, uh, you know, a simple view of how, you know, something like carbohydrates in particular, which is often like shunned and like, oh, you got to avoid carbs because they're going to make you fat. It's like, no, they're actually going to assist you. I mean, if you've seen orthopedic surgery, for those who haven't, and I'm sure you have, Scott, you probably got to watch some. Like, firstly, it's pretty brutal. Uh, secondly, it's quite long. 
and you don't eat for a long time. You probably go pretty much a day because you have to fast from the night before. You go into surgery, you come out, you don't really eat much. And granted, they give you a little bit of probably dextrose in, you know, intraoperatively if the glucose is low, but it's, you know, caloric, huge caloric deficit you run uh, for, you know, 24 hours. And I, and I think people underestimate the caloric requirements of existing, which, which sounds like a weird way to put it, but your basal metabolic rate, which is just existing, is still a huge component of your total energy requirements, even in a 30-hour-a-week Ironman athlete. Like that's still, I think you, you probably know this better than me, yeah. Scott, but it's probably, well, it's north of 50%. I'd say it's probably closer to 60, maybe 70% in those, even in those athletes. Yeah, at least at least 50%. Um, you know, there, there is going to be individual variation in someone's RMR, but yeah, you probably look at something like that. Um, it. It, it's crazy with orthopedic surgery, isn't it? And, and like even just something that's not physio related, but stuff like blood flow restriction, uh, like, you know, just doing blood flow restriction while someone's passively in bed um, can have a huge impact on say uh, retention of lean mass as well. And that I, you know, things like that, you know, when you're in a, an elite sort of sporting environment, you get introduced to this stuff. And, you know, one thing, probably one of the best takeaways I got from working at the Leafs was uh, their use of BFR, blood flow restriction, and using that early, uh, either after post-surgical or major injury, or certainly when someone was injured, um, maybe not orthopedically, as in surgically, but um, using that because, you can get a lot of impact in terms of retention of lean mass, even improvements in lean mass and strength by using blood flow restriction with say 30% of a one RM. And, you know, for people with, you know, some of these older athletes who maybe have bad shoulders, bad, bad knees, bad hips, you can still apply a certain load and still get something out of that training session. And, yeah, I, I talk about BFR a lot with older athletes because, and <laughs> I can think of uh, two people certainly in my life, uh, my my parents trying to convince them to uh, consider blood flow restriction, which is always a challenge. Uh, talking about anything sort of technical uh, with the older generation, uh, name again, my parents. Um, but you know, it, it's the science is there, and it, it's super cool. Uh, I, I read a study the other day, and it was just. They had um, some elderly people. And again, the classification for elderly now is over 60 years of age, uh, which is quite terrifying because yeah. I'm not that far off. It's not that old. And it's like, no, it's not that old. But they, uh, they, had, they had individuals, and I believe they were in the range of around 70 years of age, male and female. But they had them with blood flow restriction cuffs, and they had them walking. Uh, they simply had them walking on a treadmill and then putting them on an incline treadmill. And within two weeks, they saw significant changes in their VO2. Um, in terms of their lung capacity and their VO2 max. And that that's just incredible to know that you could apply such a simple uh, intervention on top of another very simple intervention and get an outstanding result. And so that's where I love science. And I think, you know, medical science and the way in which research is actually starting to facilitate meaningful change in those individuals who want to, uh, understand the science and then apply it to their own lives. Yeah. Yeah. I hope, uh, you know, often you need a little bit of guidance and I guess that's what we're all trying to do. We're all trying to help everyone. Um, and, you know, I think, I think with the, the correct information and hopefully not, you know, there's a lot of BS out there, but hopefully when people can sort of decipher through and listen to people who maybe understand a little bit more of the actual research and can deliver it in a practical way, I think, 
then we start to um, see some some shifts in hopefully society. Yeah, for sure. That BFR research is actually a lot of it started in like katsu, like the original Japanese stuff, which is all in walking. Mm-hmm. Now their athletes are lifting weights with it, but originally it was all walking research, I think. But you mentioned uh, nutrition during surgery and, and sort of pre-surgery. Is there anything you'd recommend? I mean, I'm just thinking about the listener and so many of them are endurance athletes who spend their lives somewhere between very, you know, very uninjured to like somewhere gray zone to injured, right? So they spend their life on this spectrum and probably a bit more time towards the, the, the gray zone of that spectrum. Anything specific you'd recommend aside from like caloric, uh, you know, not restricting carbs and, and sort of meeting caloric requirements? Yeah, I mean, you look at, again, talk about carbohydrates. You know, everyone, what I'm seeing at the moment is obviously there is this sort of, um, you know, it, it's a bit like the focus on muscle and protein. Everyone just focuses on protein and muscle, but they don't always talk about all the other roles that protein has on the body. Um, certainly if you go above that excess, you know, 1.6, 1.7 grams, which may be, you know, again, there's obviously there's new studies coming out, which is blowing everything up and sort of saying, is there a protein threshold? But even if you said, okay, there's a 1.7 gram per kilogram body weight, you know, threshold for protein. If you took in excess, it's not wasted. Like it goes somewhere else and is utilized by the body. Um, and and I think the same with carbohydrates. So many athletes are focused on fat oxidation and how's my fat burning ability and oh, what's that like? And then what's my upper limit for carbohydrate utilization and oxidation? Is it 120 grams? And it's like, well, okay, let's focus on what you're talking about with fat oxidation. They're like, I don't think I should eat carbohydrates before a session, during a session or after a session because I don't want to blunt the ability to, you know, uh, I don't want to blunt lipolysis and and, uh, my ability to burn fat. And it's like, well, okay, there's probably a number of factors here that ultimately are probably going to have a bigger impact on your ability to utilize fat as a fuel source. But if you're going to restrict carbohydrates after a session, certainly of decent intensity and decent duration, what is the negative consequences on things like bone mineral markers? And they're like, what do you mean? And it's like, well, look at look at the more recent research around bone mineral markers and um, osteoblastic and osteoclastic activity, i.e. laying down and taking away. If you restrict carbohydrates in the short term after intense exercise, you will see an increase in osteoclastic, i.e. taking away and a reduction in that laying down of bone. And so what happens even in the acute period, if you do that repeatedly over time, what is that negative consequence to that endurance athlete? I would be guessing they're probably going to end up with some form of stress reaction and stress fracture. Now, you then couple with that, you've restricted carbohydrates and unconsciously what you're doing is actually restricting energy intake. You start to restrict total energy intake and then that pushes you into low energy availability. Again, what happens with low energy availability? It underpins bone injuries. And so just looking at carbohydrates from a, I don't want to blunt fat burning can have so many other negative consequences to the athlete that they're unaware of. And so this shaming of a certain macronutrient just need, it honestly needs to stop. Um, and then, I mean, protein that has a very good name and a very good rap, but you also said that it actually plays other roles in the body as well. Can you talk to us about that a, a little bit? 
Yeah, I mean, protein's also going to play a role in bone uh, and, and bone metabolism. It's going to play a role in immune function. Um, you know, they're probably two of the bigger ones that they're going to be involved in. And, and obviously, protein amino acids are involved in every, you know, structure within the human body. So anything excess outside of, you know, that muscle protein synthesis, which again is the big focus on the majority of the research, it's not like the protein is all going to be lost either through heat or defecated out into the toilet. It is going to be repositioned around the body based on, you know, repair of cellular wars, um, organs. It it is it just goes so much beyond, I guess, that that singular focus of, oh, you don't need any more protein because that's going to max out your muscle potential. Yeah, And maybe this relates to like what you're saying. It's like, it's the same pr- thing, same concept as those silos, isn't it? Like, you know, you learn medicine, you should only learn medicine or you learn physio, you should only learn physio. And it's like, same thing. Ooh, protein, protein's only good for this. Carbohydrates, it's only good for this. And it's like, it's like even the notion of, uh, you know, when we talk about maximal fat oxidation and someone's ability to use fat and carbohydrates, I think everyone in the head is like, no, no, low intensity is fat burning only. It's like, no, it's not. You're using carbohydrates as well. It's a gradient. It's not like your body goes, right, time to start using carbs. <laughs> like, But that's that's the notion a lot of people have. It's like, I'm in fat burning zone. Now I'm in carb burning zone. It's like, no, you can shift that. Yes, you can manipulate that. And that's probably more related to just time in the saddle, low intensity exercise, and then maybe a little bit. And again, most people don't fully replenish glycogen stores. Like even if you're eating five, maybe six, seven grams per kilogram of body weight of carbohydrates, you're still not fully replenishing glycogen stores. And so over time, your ability to use fat as a fuel source is going to be shifted. And I think, again, like everyone is like, well, you, I mean, yes, you can fast track it, but do you need to fast track it would be my argument. Like, couldn't you just do it over time and do it in a really healthy manner where you're still taking in a significant amount of carbohydrates and you will see that improvement in your ability to use fat as a fuel source. And, you know, if you are in a slight caloric deficit, you will probably lose fat as well, but it's all done in a slower manner as opposed to like this, oh, I need to do it in five days, which, you know, God knows yeah. what the consequences of that are going to be. Yeah, we won't get into like the uh, short time frame people put on, particularly endurance activities, because I think that's uh, it's a bit of a, a problem. But the, like, the whole focus on fat oxidation astounds me because there are no awards for fat oxidation. Like if there were, we wouldn't, we wouldn't race. We just measure your fat oxidation and give you a medal and like, we'd all go home. So it's such a small part of, it's such a small part of performance. It's like one of these things where I think we get, you know, same with FTP or whatever, like people go like, oh, my FTP is just like, who cares? Like that has some relevance, but it, FTP isn't performance or we just get you on a trainer, do your FTP and like you go home. So it's that that capacity, isn't it? It's the capacity of the athlete and. Yeah, again, depending on what your sport is, like, yeah, okay, I'll get it. Ironman distance, yeah, you need to have a decent ability to use fat as a fuel source, but I can probably guarantee you 
if you're training for an Ironman and you have your nutrition somewhat in control and you're not smashing Twinkies every single meal, every single day for breakfast, lunch, dinner, like you're going to improve your ability to use fat as a fuel source, hands down. Yep. Now, can we accelerate that through some controlled nutrition? Absolutely. Getting you know protein in line, getting your fat intake in line, getting your carbohydrates in line. Yes, manipulating that around the intensity and the duration of exercise. But overall, even with all that training, if you're training what 10 to 20 hours a week for most Ironman athletes, if the training is well-structured and well-thought-out, and I'm sure it is for majority of athletes because they're hopefully working with some sort of training program, you will see that shift in that curve so that you are becoming better at utilizing fat. That's certainly yeah. what we're and, saying. And even if you're focusing on eating as many carbohydrates as possible, you've made the good point that people are probably not going to replenish glycogen stores. So some of that's going to be the, like a knock-on effect anyway. So I think people misconstrue like, how to optimize these things like some of these will happen naturally anyway and then that's i mean that's and that that is the point though like and and the more the research is hinting at this is it's that inability to fully replenish glycogen stores that is probably having the bigger impact and again like it is hard to eat 10 grams 10 to 12 grams per kilogram of body weight of carbs every single day and I wouldn't be prescribing that anyway. It would be based on what the athlete's individual sort of characteristics are and what their goals are. But even if you didn't do that, I would love to see someone try and do that every single day. So the reality is- It's hard enough doing it on one day. Exactly. So if they're training, they're going to improve that anyway. You don't need to manipulate it. And again, this is my opinion. Some athletes will do it, you know, I just think it's a long haul game. The average athlete trains, I think it's nine months. I saw the stats for a 70.3 and an Ironman for their first one. So it's like, it's a long time that you're in the saddle and you're in the pool and you're, and you're, you know, running on the road. So I, I don't see personally the point of acutely manipulating that. Yeah. On that, and we sort of mentioned before, we hinted at low energy availability. Can we talk a little bit about LEA and, and Red S, so like relative energy deficiency in sport? It's it's actually something we got a question on email, uh, and thank you for that. Uh, the name eludes me at the moment, so apologies to that to the person who emailed me. But uh, it's something I want to talk to you about because you've had a little bit to do with this recently uh, with you know Sky Munch, probably the the thing that most people would be thinking of given uh, she works with you and, and she's a previous guest on the Magnus. podcast. Uh, Magnus was around. Sorry, Magnus. Um, but yeah, so Sky's obviously had some, um, you know, she, she didn't have Red S from what I understand, but I mean, it's a, it's a topic that surrounds everything. So if we could have a bit of a chat about that, it'd be great. Sky was probably more the other one. She was, you know, if you listen to that podcast, she was probably more getting fat shamed. Uh, so she was yeah. told that she needed to lose uh, a certain amount of weight, which really from you know my understanding and obviously I wasn't involved with her at that time but knowing that her weight is exactly the same now as what it was at that time and I simply got her to get a DEXA scan and we looked at a percentage of body fat we looked at a lean muscle mass index and a fat mass index and total amounts and whatnot and a BMD bone mineral density and I was like I don't think you need to lose any weight and I certainly don't think you need to lose any body fat so we sort of put a, a line in the sand there and went why don't we just focus on uh, improving your overall day-to-day nutrition and focusing on your race 
nutrition and dialing that in and you know sky eats well um you know she likes cooking so i don't think there was any huge um you know interventions there there were certainly things we talked about on a day-to-day and and still do talk about on a day-to-day basis around what she eats and trialing new foods and things like that but the focus was really on making sure she got the optimal amount of protein adequate amounts of fat to supply and to support her total caloric intake and then yes manipulating carbohydrates around the training that david uh, tilbury davis was setting out for her so that you know for her it was it was more around refining her day-to-day nutrition uh and then certainly dialing in her race performance nutrition and taking in certainly a lot more energy in the form of carbohydrates on the bike to allow her to have an excellent run off the bike and you know it it, it wasn't a short-term thing and I, I think this is really important for listeners to get out is that and to hear is that that we'd worked together well we have we had at that point worked together for seven months before she um you know did florida ironman and became the fastest u.s woman um in the history of the sport but it was seven months of sort of build towards getting to that and you know there were errors there, there were certainly some errors she gave herself hypernatremia in uh, frankfurt because uh, she has this affinity to water stations and uh, drinking stuff because it's being handed to her and so you know went a little bit off kilter and didn't necessarily follow the plan and as a result that that impacted her performance but yeah luckily it was ironman frankfurt and it wasn't the world champs and it wasn't the most important race to her um but it's also important, I think, to know that yeah, mistakes do happen even for pro athletes. They they have their off days. Yeah, that's important. And so for those listening, hyponatremia, low salt as a result of drinking too much water, basically. Uh, yeah. So and, and she doesn't take she the... doesn't take on a lot of salt. Um, actually, she takes she takes in a very small amount of salt. But it it really came down to fluid balance. Uh, it was more that she just took in yeah way too much fluid, uh, water, and effectively diluted her system. Yeah, so my apologies there on tainting Sky with the uh, the red S brush, so to no, speak. No, that's Although all right. It's not a, nothing to be ashamed of. Well, but can you, we talk a little bit about red yeah, S? Yeah, so Rachel Zelenkis is um, actually one of the pro athletes I work with that's um, been very open about her struggles with um, disordered eating and her unfortunate experience with low energy availability, uh, LEA, and red S, relative energy deficiency in sport, or otherwise known as red S. Um, and... Rachel's, she was the second youngest uh, pro athlete in the field at Kona this year. Uh, and she came in a very respectable, oh, I'm probably going to mess this up. I'm pretty sure it was 24th, but uh, it was a fantastic effort. She was actually very sick on that race day, unfortunately, um, and still pushed through. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, through her younger years, I mean, she's still very young, but early 20s, yeah, she unfortunately had... Um, you know, I guess you'd term it disordered eating. Uh, as a result, uh, she was involved in uh, swimming, uh, the US national swim team. And uh, I won't go into the like nitty gritty of why things occur, but certainly, you know, her total energy intake was way under what was required. And for any of the listeners out there that may or may not know anything about swimming, your uh, energy requirements when it comes to swimming are massively increased namely because you're swimming in a denser medium than air you're obviously in water and so you lose a lot of energy through heat 
transference. Um, and there's some there's some cool equations that we're playing with in the background now, um, trying to quantify actual energy expenditure in the pool, because what we're seeing with fuel in now is we're seeing um, quite a wide array of athlete abilities and being myself, I'm a terrible swimmer. So my, even though I might be in the pool for 30 or 40 minutes um, because my inefficient stroke actually results in a, a quite a large energy expenditure, but someone like Rachel could swim for an hour and swim, you know, five or six Ks because of her efficiency, the actual, uh, rate of energy expenditure is a little bit lower, but because she's doing more distance, it sort of then sort of balances it out. So now you've got to look at time in the water, total distance completed, and then also apply a factor as to the um, the swimming ability of the athlete. And we're seeing some crazy numbers come out of this, and we're looking to get some verification on this um, this algorithm. Alan, Dr. Alan McCubbin, who works with Fuel In, he's actually speaking. Uh, to the the researchers who have created these algorithms to to sci- try and get a little bit more information on it and how we can apply it to the fuel in program, but it's it's super cool to see. Being inefficient swimmers, you and I belong <laughs> in the same WhatsApp group, Scott. Um, but I mean, I've noticed at Swim Squad that out of the three disciplines in triathlon. Um, I'm of the belief that most amateur athletes underfuel anyway during training, um, but more so in swimming. You hardly ever see anyone with the bottle of something, carbohydrates or eating or anything like that. I'm not sure if you have the same experience in Australia or wherever you train and, and why that is. Uh, it's funny, you know, like I was down the pool today. Um, I actually did a, a sprint yesterday. Um, and so I was meant to do a recovery swim, which felt like, God awful, like zone four, even though it was terrible. Um, but actually, I do notice a lot of the athletes or a lot of the swimmers down there do have bottles sideline. Now, I don't know what's in those bottles, but again, it is something, and talking back to Rachel in terms of caloric expenditure, so she will she will generally be consuming at least 60 grams of carbs uh, for anything under a 60-minute swim. If she goes above 60 minutes, we're starting to push 90 to 100 grams uh, into her during the swim. Now, she will also eat generally 50 to 100 grams of carbs before that session, and she will generally try and consume what we call a green meal, um, 100 grams of carbs afterwards. And that is in conjunction with, say, a certain amount of, like she'll generally have at least 40 grams of protein and probably you know, 15, 20 grams of fat after a session like that as well. So... I mean, she's literally an eating machine these days and uh, it's pretty awesome to see. She One one cool story about Rach and she's the loveliest human being. Um, I will give her a shout out, but um, she loves to bake. And one thing that really sort of caught me off guard when she first said it, she said she used to use the baking to disguise. So it was sort of her method of like she could cook, but she'd give it away. Now she's not giving it away so much and she's actually eating a lot more of it and I think that's really cool. And she started contributing some recipes and things like that to the fuel in app. So it, it's just super to see. And I guess, David, the, sorry, the, I sort of segued there, you know, the unfortunate thing with low energy availability, as I hinted at before, is it underpins. Yeah. It un- certainly underpins red S um, and it underpins 
if you think of what uh, athletes would probably traditionally know as the female triad, the female athletic triad, which was traditionally low energy availability, uh, bone injuries and menstrual dysfunction. So it was very much aimed at the female athlete. Thankfully, through research, um, or thankfully, I'm not so thankful, um, you know, we know that men are also um, susceptible to this. And I can think of another young athlete, and again, he's been very open about it, um, Joel Woodridge, who I work with in Australia. And, uh, you know, he's a young, young professional athlete, and he unfortunately thought skinny was better. You know, he had abs, but it was just from being so skinny. And he, he's actually 16 kilos heavier now. Uh, he's put on that much weight since we've been working together and um, touch wood while he came off his bike the other day and bloody hurt his ankle, but uh, and got some stitches in his elbow, but touch wood, like, you know, no injuries now. He's 16 kilos heavier. He's swimming the same. He's pushing bigger numbers on his bike and his run hasn't slowed down. And it's like, it's just this, like, again, it's just misinformation around what, what makes you a better athlete. And it's not always skinnier is better. You're gonna get David excited, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those, uh, a lot of those, you know, telltale signs. So you talk about females, you know, um, you know, absence of uh, of menses. So absence of um, a period is probably a telltale sign for any female athlete that they're under fueling and probably in that state of low energy availability and into red S. Um, for men, erectile dysfunction. So if you don't get a morning uh, erection five five mornings a week. Uh, and you're doing, you know, a lot of training, there's a good chance that you may be under fueling irritability. We all get a little bit irritable and a bit pissed off every now and then. But uh, if you're constantly like, you know, really aggro um, or massive mood swings, that can be also indicative of under fueling, uh, difficulty sleeping, night sweats, obviously night sweats can be um, applied to other uh, pathology, as David could probably allude to. But certainly if you are um, getting night sweats and you're training a lot and you're otherwise healthy, it could be a sign of underfueling as well. Um, and they're, they're just a few of the, yeah. and then obviously the big ones like stress reactions, stress fractures, that's probably the end of the line. Like once you've got a stress fracture, it's like, well, yeah, that's, that's the consequence um, of what you've been doing over a period of time. And unfortunately, often the first time people will have, uh, red S questioned in them is when they have a, a stress reaction or a stress fracture. It's usually not before then, unfortunately. So uh, I'd say that, you know, if this was a medical school lecture, they'd say the most common presentation of bone stress of, uh, you know, this is a bone stress injury, but um, anyway, yeah. we won't, won't digress down that route. What, what is really noticed- interesting, David, actually on the bone injuries, and it's something that we really push hard with fuel in is to get athletes, you know, to get a DEXA scan and, it's probably, you know, people will have differing views on DEXA scans and that. And I do it mainly to just be slightly more objective. You know, if someone is 35% body fat, you know, then they've probably got a legitimate reason that if they want to try and reduce body fat for health reasons, as much as performance reasons, it's objective. Now, again, in Sky's case, you know, if you're down in the, the mid-teens or whatever, like you got to have that discussion of like, is this really necessary? But the reason I also get DEXA scans done is to actually check bone mineral density. And we are seeing a huge proportion or percentage of athletes, male, female, younger, so certainly under 50 years of age, with uh, you know low bone mineral density heading into osteopenia um, 
you know, not necessarily osteoporosis, but certainly on that pathway towards osteoporosis. And the scan or the, the routine scanning, certainly in Australia for bone mineral density is only at 70 years of age. And by that stage, it's too late. And it, it comes back to, you know, that talk about what's wrong with medicine. It's waiting for things to happen and then trying to do something about them. Like, let's be proactive. Get your DEXA done. Quantify, like, your bone mineral density. Quantify your lean muscle mass. Quantify your fat mass. And then take a step back, talk to a professional and go, do I need to do something about this? And if you've got low bone mineral density and you're an endurance athlete, think about the big picture here and go, am I going to be doing this sport for the rest of my life? No, but do I need my bones to support me for the rest of my life? Yes. Maybe a period of time of very heavy lifting uh, weights could be the best thing that you actually do. And so I, I think it is important. Like well, I get it. Some people, or what were you going to say? I was going to say like, those bones help you in sport as well. The only sport where, I mean, I guess if you, I guess in a triathlete context, cycling and, uh, and swimming aren't particularly good for bone mass. So like, cause they're non-low bearing. So yeah. that's probably how this happens. But if you're, if you're doing any sort of running and you have low mineral, bone mineral density, that's a food problem because you are getting loading. So yeah. Yeah. it's, that's a food problem first, second and third, and then maybe some other stuff, but like you shouldn't be, I, listeners can't see this, but like my eyebrows are so raised thinking about like how many people have low bone mineral density, because I think part of the reason medicine doesn't do it is because the assumption is most people are probably fine in their twenties or whatever, but what you're saying is they probably aren't because they probably aren't eating enough. And that's a real problem. Well, not eating enough, but you know, think of the average person, they sit on their bum all day, you know, so they, 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 yeah. And think of the average endurance athlete. Like let's think of the triathlete. They spend majority of their time swimming and biking which is, as you say, David, non-weight bearing. And then apart from that, what are they doing? They're generally sitting on their bum at work or on the couch if they're a professional athlete. And the time spent in weightlifting is probably yeah, questionable at most. Like, are they actually doing the quality work that actually would stimulate bone? And so then they do some running. And if, as you say, they're under-fueling, it's just like it's just a, you know, it's a disaster waiting to happen, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, <laughs> one thing, why you had the last four words? Oh, it's just like, it's just so sad. Like to think about this belief that like oh, this, this, restrictive eating and this belief that lighter is faster and all these things, aesthetic goals, any of it to sacrifice health in any context, like, because these problems of low bone density, that's such a problem going forward. That's if you break your hip as an elderly person, your chance of living more than six months is very low. Like, and that's, I would say that's probably like the, the mortality rate on that is like 80%. And part of the reason for that is people who are well generally don't break hips, right? So there's there's both there's some reverse causality here, but like my one of my biggest fears is is a broken hip because I've seen what that looks like. And actually, to be honest, a broken hip is probably the best outcome. Doing something else would be way worse because hips are a lot easier to repair. We've got good pathways for that sort of stuff and and all of that. But just yeah, I I couldn't be 
eat enough food and, and load your bones. And it doesn't have to, like, the thing is bone loading doesn't have to be that much. Like we're talking about standing on the spot, jumping up as high as you can in the air and landing and doing that a handful of times, a couple of times a week. We're not, this isn't complex. Yeah. It's, it's not a complex thing where you need to go do X, Y, and Z, like just jump. Uh, or, you know, maybe do some like clap pushups and then you've like hit your upper body as well. This isn't particularly difficult uh, stuff and then eat enough food. Yeah. But I think, I, and the only thing I will counter on that, like I'm not absolutely everything you've said is, is bang on. Like you do not want to have low bone mineral density. I think it's, and I know we spoke about this earlier um, or previously, you know, it's that, it's that notion of like, what is enough food, I guess. And this is where I think the whole, uh, messaging gets confusing as well because you know as we said like athletes should consume eight to ten eight to twelve grams per kilo body weight of carbohydrates like i was looking through the recommendations uh beforehand and it's like really i'm pretty sure a it's nearly impossible to do that on a regular basis but b i don't really think all athletes need to eat that amount depending on their individual circumstances based around what their training volume is, what their intensity is, and also what their purpose is and what their actual basic sort of physiology and, uh, and physical status is. You know, if you are obese or overweight and you want to get your uh, body into a state of relative health, then yes, a caloric deficit is going to be required. And I think this is always the tricky thing because if you're then doing a lot of training volume on top of that, how big that caloric deficit is, is probably then going to be the factor that either pushes you into, you know, potentially low energy availability and all this negative consequences occurring. Um, you know, there's some things you can do to offset that certainly, um, you know, just from basics. So, and again, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but like from real practical standpoints, I think people get very confused. They're like, oh, I'm eating more than I ever have and I'm losing weight. And it's like, no, you're eating less calories, but you're eating more volume of food and you're eating more volume of food because you've knocked out all the ultra processed and processed crap. And what you've actually gone into is lo and behold, carbohydrates, but in the forms of fruit and vegetables. And so the caloric density of all that, you can pile that onto a plate and you might get 150 calories versus, you know, a little macro bar, which yes, it gives you 20 grams of protein and 10 grams of fat, and you know, five, 15 grams of carbs, but you have that and you're looking for something immediately afterwards. There's no nutritional satiation involved in that. So it's, it's changing people's habits to think about, what is going to be best for my body? What allows me to feel very full, provide me with you know nutritional density, but not necessarily caloric density, but still enough calories to actually sustain what I am trying to do in life, i.e. train and lose, if I am trying to lose body fat and weight for a health and performance aspect, that's how you do it. Um, Scott, is it also wiser if you are looking at a caloric deficit um, and you're looking to get, let's say, from an obese state, overweight state into a healthier state um, and you increasing your training volume, is it better to have a more patient approach, uh, approach and have that deficit smaller rather than larger and play the long game? Is that generally 
like a better approach? It's a, I mean, the best diet's the one that you can stick with. Uh, that's pretty much proven in the research as well. So again, like, so there's two parts to that. Um, yes, the best diet is the one that you can stick with. So if you want to go fasting, if you want to do Mediterranean, vegan, vegetarian, whatever it is, like ultimately, whichever one you can stick to is going to work. The reason they work is when you're in a caloric deficit. So they, whatever diet you choose, it still has to be a caloric deficit. Um, and then the third part to that question is actually, when you look at it, if you get some rapid weight loss at the start of any nutritional intervention, it does create a little bit of buy-in. They're like, wow, I'm losing weight here and this is great, which is probably why low carbohydrate diets at the start are very successful because not necessarily because you're losing fat mass, you're losing water weight. Because for every gram of carbohydrates, you attract sort of three or four grams of water. And so in five days, you could drop a significant amount. If you've gone from eating, say, 400 grams of carbs a day to down to 100, even 150, you'll still see a significant drop in weight by the end of that week. Now, is that sustainable? Maybe, again, if you intervene in that person's diet and have them eating a lot of fresh fruit and vegetables to keep them very satiated, but bring that total amount of calories down by manipulating their carbohydrate intake. Yeah, it's possible. They could stay with that. I guess it then comes down to the diet, the preference of the individual to eat a lot of fruit and veg. Um, sadly, what is it? 2%, 3% of the world eats uh, the recommended amount. So, which is, you know, it's just, it is what it is. Most people only eat their vegetables at night, don't they? One meal a day. It's something you know, very cool that we try and do with Fuel In. We really push, uh, you know, diet quality and we have these reminders in the app, even at breakfast, you know, try and get your two fists of veggies in. And, you know, when users first come on, they're like, you want me to eat vegetables at breakfast? And I'm like, yeah, why not? And they're like, that's ridiculous. But then I'm like, you go to a cafe order your eggs. There's always a little salad there. And it's like, have you ever had you know, like grilled broccolini in the morning with eggs or asparagus with your eggs? Do you eat avocado on toast? I mean, it's, it's like a staple Australian, uh, you know, institution, isn't it? Bill Granger. I mean, he, he introduced the world to avo on toast with some uh, soft poached eggs and you know, there's, there's some vegetables. Okay. They're not necessarily leafy greens, but maybe you start with some avo on toast, a little smear of Vegemite underneath it, uh, just for, um, because you can, and then you can layer in, you know, layer in some rocket or arugula as, um, the Americans will call it baby spinach. If you don't like eating it raw, just wilt it, crack the eggs into it, mix it all together. You know, there's plenty of ways of increasing your amounts of leafy greens into your daily diet, you just have to sort of change your thinking. And I think, again, it's it, everything's habits, isn't it? It's all habit formation and habit creation and setting up your environment to succeed. You know, anyone who's listened to James Clear, I, I think he's fantastic. I think it's the way he talks about habit creation and formation and habit stacking, you already do something, just add something to it. And then it just becomes a flow. And I think once you create, again, go back to diets, consistency is what wins. If you're consistently good, not necessarily perfect, 
because no one's perfect. But if you're good majority of the time over the course of the week, you will start to see things happen. You do that over the course of a month, you'll certainly see changes start to occur. You do that for months on end, you definitely see changes. But the hard thing is, is sticking to it. Everyone like, you know, it's a little bit of hard work. And we, we see this with athletes all the time. You know, the ones who stick with it and really persevere and put the effort in, they put the effort into their nutrition like they do with their training. They're the ones who get the results. And yeah, it's hard initially because you're relearning. Yeah, like you said, uh, Zelon, like, you know, oh, really eat, eat veggies at breakfast. It's like, because most people are like, well, it's cereal and toast, isn't it? Like that's, that's the notion of breakfast. And that was created by yeah. Kellogg's. <laughs> <laughs> a brand. We, uh, when we spoke to, when we spoke to Brendan Egan a little while ago, he was big on this as well. And it like rung through and same stuff. It's like, if you can get more protein and vegetables at breakfast or, or perhaps let's talk it the other way, most people need more protein and vegetables at breakfast. Uh, and that would set them up much better for the day. Good so. segue. Good segue into that study, though. Let's talk about that study because yeah. I think it's it's so cool to like see this type of research. Yeah, let's let's go into it. So, basically, to summarize the study and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but previous to this, there was a theory that beyond 30 grams of protein, uh, any muscle protein synthesis wasn't increased, and thus the theory was, hey, protein requirements should be spread across a day because you're not going to get uh, any additional benefits eating more protein at that time. Uh, so if you're going to go to 40 grams, that was kind of wasted, so to speak, although that's not really what it was. But a recent study showed that or suggests that, you know, there's no upper limit to muscle protein synthesis. It's probably more just a slowing of this. It's sort of a, a like uh, the word eludes me at the moment, but it's um, the rate sort of flattens out a little bit, but it doesn't stop increasing. So uh, I actually... There's a couple of things in there. You, you are right. The The thought was 30 grams, but even before that, it was 20 grams. And then it went to 30 grams. And then more research came out and it went, oh, maybe 40 grams is required. And they were looking at this and it was like, if you think about it, like you've got these bodybuilders. They certainly weren't consuming 20 grams of protein after a session. And certainly they were probably consuming other things in conjunction to protein. But the amount of protein they were consuming was relative to their body size. So I think from a, you know, researchers often catching up to the field standpoint. And I think what researchers saw was maybe this doesn't make sense. So they started looking at higher doses or boluses of protein uh, that you could take in and see what the effect was. What all those studies did though, was only assess for four hours. I think four to six hours was the maximum time they were assessing the amino acid um, profile in the blood, what this study did was look at 12 hours. And this was the first time that 12 hours has ever been assessed as far as I'm aware. I might get called out on that. So what it actually shows is like, if you think of like even an overnight fast or something like that, what happens at the end of those 12 hours? And they took they took what naught, uh, naught grams as a um, the control. I think it was 30 grams as one group and then 100 grams of protein um, and then they assessed what happens in terms of muscle protein synthesis over a 12-hour period. And the 100 grams of protein all in one hit was far superior uh, than the 30 grams. And actually, you continue to see muscle protein synthesis um, and what they call fractional synthetic rate 
over that 12 hour period with 100 grams of protein. Now, it was a milk protein concentrate uh, that they used. So it wasn't like a chicken breast or a steak or anything. And I think that's probably the evolution of this study will be going into maybe whole foods and going, okay, what happens if you eat 500 gram T-bone steak in the morning and you follow that guy or woman uh, for the next 12 hours, is that enough? And so I think what it, what it's hinting at here, and, and we talk about this a lot internally because we're like, oh, does this change the way that we need to position meal timing for athletes? And overwhelmingly we say no, because the reality is, has anyone, have you ever tried, I mean, yes, I can eat 400 grams of chicken breast in one sitting and that will give me a hundred grams of protein. But if I wanted to go up to like a kilo of chicken all in one hit to give me, you know, my total amount of protein for the day, I'm probably going to feel pretty sick afterwards. I'm not going to be moving very well. I'm probably going to just be sitting on the, lying on my back on the couch going, oh God, help me. So the reality is, is you can eat probably more protein in the morning than what you think you need. And we will certainly push, you know, minimum of 30 grams of protein, I think should be the minimum that anyone, male, female, old or young is consuming, certainly after training. But, you know, we have recommendations, 40, 50 grams of protein, depending on the size of the athlete, and then spacing it throughout the day, purely from a practical standpoint, because protein is very satiating. Um, it will make you feel quite full, which is why we tend to use a higher protein intake, especially for individuals trying to drop some fat or drop weight. Um, but just partitioning it out throughout the day tends to work from a practical standpoint. And I, so I think there is still reasoning to spread out your protein. That reasoning though is probably more for practical reasons than any scientific rationale around protein sparing and things like that, which was once thought. And I think it's good to acknowledge that and say, you know what, that's all appears to be BS now and not necessary from a spacing protein out. It is just a practical reason, which is great for athletes to hear. They're like, okay, so I can eat a lot more protein in the morning. And then if I do want to reduce my protein throughout the day so that at night I have a smaller amount of protein because maybe it makes you sleep better or you feel better, you're not going to bed in a full tummy. As long as you get your total protein intake for the day, somewhere between two and three grams per kilo body weight, you're in a good position. That's cool. <laughs> that was literally gonna be my question now. Please remind me how much um, protein I should be eating, but you just answered the question right there. <laughs> well, I mean, it's again, and Dave, you should chime in on this, but you know, there, there's a lot of, there seems to be a lot of not necessarily misinformation around protein, but certainly from what we've seen in the research, I don't think there is a need for differing groups to be taking differing amounts of protein. If you're involved in athletic um, adventures, let's call it, if you're doing training, whether you're male, female, young or old, you certainly want to be taking, look, at an absolute minimum, 1.8 grams per kilo body weight. But I think just keep it simple, somewhere between two and three grams per kilo body weight, depending on total calorie needs, you bump it up as you need more, or if you, you prefer a slightly higher protein diet. But certainly, you know, two to three grams per kilo body weight is what we would recommend. That's a lot, eh? Yeah, that's, I mean, but... To try again, to eat that daily. Yeah, 
it, and that's why you need it at breakfast as well. Because if you're only eating three meals a day and you decide to go without any protein or without much protein at one meal, you've got a, like a big hill to climb is the first thing. And the second thing is it's so funny to see like the first book I ever read on training and all that stuff that I was interested in. I'll never forget the day I cracked it open 2005 Arnold Schwarzenegger's encyclopedia of modern bodybuilding right. written in the seventies. And, and he was talking about one gram per pound of body weight and one gram of protein per pound of body weight comes out to 2.2 grams per kilogram. It's exactly in the range Scott's talking about. And he also talked about a bunch of stuff that's like now being, you know, proven whatever that means but like 50 years later all the stuff that they'd learned anecdotally is being borne out in the science that we're seeing and i just think if there are people whose job it is to do something they're going to find a way they may not find the best way and it might not be evidence-based at the time but they're going to find a way and it's worthwhile having a look and having a think and to to use some reasoning like what if we overconsume protein well the answer is it's probably better for you than overconsuming other macronutrients. Maybe it's neutral, maybe it's not better, but like it's probably not a concern. So given its role in bone, given its role in tendon, given its role in muscle and you're an athlete, those are the things you care about a lot. Like let's go that way and you know make sure we get enough carbohydrates and stuff, but like let's make sure we hit protein goals because that's also going to help you again acknowledging that our body isn't a car that we just pour fuel into. It has hormones, it has psychology, it has emotions, it has all these things. If we hit protein requirements and we hit fiber requirements and then fill up carbohydrate requirements, the rest of it will sort itself out. And then that plus training means we end up with optimal body composition. And you go, you look at the inputs and focus on things to add and life gets a lot simpler. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's very well said. And yeah, a lot of the emphasis is on like this perimenopause postmenopausal woman and how much they should be consuming and you need a lot more protein it's like no no you just need the same amount that you should have been consuming when you were 20 like it's no different (laughs) and let's let's like i'm all for like improving that age group and that um that issue that women uh go through but it's not necessarily special to them it's just what they should have been doing and the science has caught up with actually Older people need just as much as younger people. It's not that they need any more. It's and yeah, I mean, you look, you could argue that maybe they even need more, but certainly that range that a young athlete is consuming or should be consuming should be the same as that older athlete, at least as a starting point. And I think that's just a very, very simple key takeaway for every athlete out there. Protein will not make you Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, if you're doing endurance training as well. So don't be scared don't be scared of that. Lots of people have paid lots of people lots of money to make them Arnold Schwarzenegger and it hasn't happened. So <laughs> yeah. don't so don't be thinking it'll happen to you by mistake. Um we're running out of time here a little bit and I also want to get to your um own sporting journey, Scott. But we, we're having a very productive conversation, but there's so much knowledge out there. It can be very overwhelming. What's the right thing to do? What's the timing? What, what works for me? Maybe can you talk to us about the Fueling app? How do you guys on a practical level help users? Yeah, I think, look, the, the sole reason this was created was because I think it, what I saw with, um, you know, Sarah Pian Piano at that point in time was just a, a very, there was a big gap in the market for what I term or what we term training-based nutrition, which was actually applying, taking the theoretical frameworks, which is how every nutritionist and dietitian works, like 
like we've discussed, you need two grams per kilo of body weight of protein. You need this much carbohydrates and actually removing that guesswork for the athlete. So yes, all that scientific rationale is applied to their nutrition program, but all they have to do is open the app and go, okay, that's what I need to eat for breakfast. Then I've got my training. Do I need to eat? What do I need to eat during training? Okay, we'll tell you based on the intensity and duration. What do I need to consume after that? And so it's all laid out for them. And effectively, it's removing the guesswork. And that's that was the sole purpose of Fuel In, was to simplify nutrition, to make it practical and meaningful for the athlete. Let's, let's do a bit of sport. So I guess, what does sport and exercise look like for you at the moment, Scott? We, we obviously mentioned a couple of things in the intro, but like, what does it look like day to day? Day to day, I am meant to be racing at Oceanside 70.3, which is, I think, in uh, less than nine weeks. So I like to leave things a little bit tight when it comes to training. Uh, my very first 70.3, I think I had nine weeks of uh, preparation, which involved training on a gym bike for a few of those weeks because I actually didn't have a bike, which is very funny. And I could send you some photos of that. It's very amusing now that I look back at it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the plan is, uh, get in the pool, try and learn to swim a little bit better and keep pushing out the bike and run, uh, like to do another marathon this year. I was talking to Dave about that. And, uh, I think I just need to run a little bit further in training, maybe run over 32 Ks more than once. Uh, so yeah, that's probably on the cards. Just keep it, keep it pretty simple. Maybe one seventy point three, one marathon and just stay fit in between. And the next marathon sub three we talked about, correct? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's knocking off twenty nine minutes, which uh, I think. Well, look, if I do, if I do um, Oceanside in April, and then I really knuckle down and focus on the marathon, then maybe a marathon at the end of the year, which you know hopefully won't be in thirty five degree heat, thirty five Celsius heat as well, which is what the Sydney Marathon was in. So I might pick a cool exactly. <laughs> yeah. Have you done a full Ironman before? Okay, I, I sense your love of triathlon. No, I haven't. Uh, the swim scares the bejesus out of me. <laughs> <laughs> like swimming that far, like I know I can do it, but it would just like, oh, so much effort, the swim and the training. And to be fair, I've got, look, I've got, well, my, my little boy's just over two now, but, uh, you know, two kids very close to under two is uh, a bit, it's a bit much to ask of uh, Mel and uh, say, yeah, I'm going to train for a full Ironman as well. I think I, I might be uh, testing the waters. <laughs> you should talk to Zylan. He gets to say he finished full Ironmans without doing the swim. So uh, he can he can organize a, a cancelled swim for you and you can call yourself an Ironman. I'll let you but, know my uh, race calendar. Whenever I'm on the start line, swim gets cancelled. So just come with me. I'll let you know <laughs> my plans. That, that's that's the ideal Ironman for me, honestly. It's just the bike run. I'd be like, boom, I'm in. That's so good. Let's talk a bit about let's talk about fueling. What was your strategy for your for your marathon? Let's go with that. So, what did you do? Uh, let's talk uh, pre race breakfast. Let's talk in race fueling. Yeah, uh, well, day before. So the way we, I mean, the way we set it up in fuel in is. Um, 48 hours before. So you start to increase your total amount. So I had, I know the numbers. Um, I had six and a half grams per kilo body weight. Obviously there's going to be measurement error in what you're tracking and things like that. But that's what I was aiming for uh, on the Friday. Um, 
and then on the Saturday, I took in uh, around 11 grams per kilo body weight. And again, this was a higher amount than what I did for the 70.3. I wanted to actually up the total intake to see how I um, went with that for the for the race. So I took that in 24 hours before morning of the race. I consumed 150 grams of carbs. Uh, I do that through overnight oats packed full of maple syrup and uh, um it's got some protein powder and stuff in it. It's sort of uh, a recipe that we've got within Fuel In. Uh, I think I also had a couple of bits of toast. Raisin toast is usually my uh, guilty pleasure when it comes to that's just a lot carbs of in. that's a lot of carbs and a lot of food pre pre marathon. It's impressive. Most people would be yeah. surprised by that. Most people are like one slice of toast, bit of peanut butter, crack on. Yeah, I was I was trying to get in like around two grams. I wanted to try and get that two to three grams per um, per kilo in for that pre-race meal. And this isn't something yeah. that I just sort of did on race day and went, yeah, like a big part of what we do with athletes is actually practicing this. So pushing, practice your race day breakfast, practice it in training because like, again, it, it just blows my mind that people don't pay attention to this. They've got doing all the training and they get to race day and they're like, Oh man, what am I going to eat on the morning of the race? And you're like, <laughs> how have you not practiced? And you're laughing because you're like, that's me. And it's like, that's the stuff you've got to practice though and dial in the day before you've got to practice your carb load because taking in that amount of carbs, A, it's hard from a practical standpoint, but how you respond to differing foods, as you guys would know with Super Sapiens, like everyone responds to foods differently. So my go to is white rice. I either have a savory or a sweet, but it's boiled white rice with sweet chili sauce and chicken thighs, or it's boiled white rice with maple syrup and plain yogurt. And that's what I eat all day. Oh, and I also eat rice bubbles, or I think they're called Rice Krispies in America, but I eat rice bubbles with maple syrup wow. as well. Um, but it's Oh, that's huge... very Canadian of you. Oh, it's it's so good though. Like it's the best. I got into maple syrup when I was in Canada, actually, in a big way. So, um, but that's what I that and I've I've practiced that over and over again, knowing that that's the amounts and that the foods that I feel really good on. So I had that. Um, then I think an hour. So that was about two two and a half hours out from the race. I think an hour out from the race. I think I dropped actually. Uh, I might have dropped one gel. I think I had a Morton gel at that point in time. And then about 10 minutes before, and that was caffeine. I had caffeine at that time as well. I had 200 milligrams of caffeine. 10 minutes out from the start of the race, I had another gel, which was I was using Precision Hydration, uh, their flow gel. And so I had 30 grams of that then. And I carried my nutrition on me because I wanted to know how much I was getting in. So I think I averaged, I've, I've given you all the data and I actually had a uh, CGM on as part of a study. And so I was taking in about oh, 80. We're going to, we're going to ask yeah. about that in a second. Yeah. Okay. So I took in about 85 grams uh, on in the marathon uh, per hour. Oh, wow. An hour. Wow. Yeah. 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 That's good. Yeah. So I was, I was and, chugging, chugging. And all away. precision? It was all precision hydration. Uh, I Actually, I think I had one Morton gel in my back pocket because I was like, I'm going to need to mix this up a little bit just to, for flavor. Um, and then I had my strategy with water um, on the course, which I, you know, I, I drank at every aid station. I would walk through pretty much every aid station, grab two glasses at the front, dip two over me, keep myself fully wet and then exit. So I, I sorry, I did, um, yeah, one over the head, one down the front, 
drank two cups. And then as I was exiting, one over the head, one down the front to keep me fully wet because um, whole body wettedness is a thing to keep you cool. Um, so That's yeah. very Iron Man of you. And I'm sure the marathoners were really grumpy at someone walking through an aid station. That is not play on in a marathon. They do not like that. Um, yeah, I did. I had a few. Hear it. Had a few people bump into me and from behind. I was like, "Wait!" <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. But no. Yeah. It, and to be fair, like you know, I I know I do know that that strategy saved me because at the end of that race, it was dead set apocalypse. Now, like I saw this guy yep. like face plant on the middle of the road as he was running. Like he just dropped and landed flat on his face from heat exhaustion. I presume heat exhaustion. Um, but you know, I finished strong and it was good. Very consistent. I have a, a, I have a friend who listens to this and he's going to laugh, but he once said to me, the last five kilometers of a marathon is a zombie apocalypse. You've got all the zombies trudging their way. Who've cooked their pacing or cooked their nutrition who are really battling. And then you've got all of the people who are running away from the zombies who've got it right. And it looks like the zombie apocalypse. And I, I it's stuck with me ever since. And I'm always like, I want to be the person running, not the zombie. I, I was the person running, thankfully. So uh, I was sort of chuckling to myself going, and I mean, I, I, you know, there was a bit of pressure on though, because I was wearing fuel in branded t-shirt, like singlet and a hat. And I was thinking, oh God, like I do not, A, want to bonk, B, I don't want to pass out from like heat exhaustion or messing up my hydration strategy. So thankfully it all went very well for my first marathon. <laughs> it looks so or bad. Vomit. <laughs> or vomit, yes. Yeah. Um, that marathon was Sydney Marathon. You did three twenty nine, and you mentioned you used CGM um, during the process. What what did you learn from from using a continuous glucose monitor? Well, it was, I mean, Dave, I, I think actually you should talk through this data because I looked at it and I was like, oh, well, it looks pretty steady uh, throughout, uh, which I guess I would have expected yeah. considering I was taking in eighty odd grams of carbs per hour. Um, there were some drops at the very end after I finished the race, which I thought was interesting. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, do you want to do you want to actually talk through what you well, saw? Because I know you you explained it probably much better than me. Yeah, I mean, let's let's leave the like analysis of your data. We'll, I'll do. We're going to do a um, a webinar with you guys, so I'll, I'll jump on that with you, and I won't uh, we won't ruin that webinar for people. Yeah. So so look, come and tune into the webinar, um, and that'll either be before or after this podcast goes live. I'm not exactly sure when. We'll, we'll work yeah. that out, but tune in. We'll do that. But in terms of um, I guess if that's now that you've worn one, where do you think CGMs fit into nutrition and like going forward coaching athletes uh, or non-athletes, where do you think CGMs may have a role in that? Yeah, I think it's such an interesting one because to be honest, like when I first heard about CGMs and their their possible use through companies like your own, um, I was super excited because I was like, wow, well, that's going to be amazing. Like we're going to be able to see when someone's going to need to fuel and whatnot. And I think then I started to see, like, I think from a practical standpoint, I was like, well, is someone going to change their fueling behavior um, based on maybe the numbers that are coming through? Or are they just going to continue fueling at the rate at which they feel comfortable at um, rather than looking at a number? So I sort of pulled away a little bit from it. Um, I think for... A high-performing athlete in the middle of a race, I don't know. I, I don't know if, again, the CGM I had, I had no visibility over numbers, so I guess I had no uh, no cues as to what was happening with my 
uh, blood glucose. But would I necessarily have changed that? Probably not. I probably would have continued on with the plan as I had. So. Yeah. I think some of that stuff will depend on uh, trials beforehand, I, how you relate to the data, what you're looking for from the data, what your experience is with the CGM. And, you know, speaking to people who've used a lot of visibility, uh, myself included, you can start to understand what certain things mean and take the data in context. Just like it's like any other data stream. Would you change your race plan if you saw your heart rate change? Depends. Depends on your experience with heart rate. Depends on if you can see it. Depends on if you think that's a real change. Depends on if you think that's going to cause a problem for you later. If your heart rate was 190 on the start line and you thought that was a real measurement, you might change what you're doing. Whereas if it was 50 on the start line and you thought that wasn't real data, then you probably wouldn't change what you're doing. So like any data stream, you need to question the data stream, whether it's like where that fits in context. Do you think that's a real number? Could it be misdata reading? Whatever, right? So the more I talk to athletes and I'm talking pro triathletes or whatever, they all seem to say like the reason that they use CGM or any other data source is so that they can race on feel on the day. So it may be that you you need that visibility, you need that stuff for the full data stream so that you understand what you feel on the day because the computer in your head is better than any piece of tech. So can we get to a stage where we understand and assimilate all that data so that the feeling is then contextualized so that on race day when I feel that, I know what that feels like. So I know what low glucose feels like. I know what a high heart rate feels like. I know what a high power feels like. So then I don't have to worry about it on the day. And I, I think that's probably where the use of them is going to come in more. So not necessarily in the race situation. <clears throat> Again, it's a bit similar to what I was saying. Like you dial in your nutrition, you dial in your performance in training. And so when you come to race day, you know, yeah, exactly what you're going to be doing and how you should respond to that. And I think... Yeah, I think as, uh, you know, accuracy and I think things like, uh, you know, the lag times and all this that is coming through and improvements in the measurement of blood glucose and how how these machines are doing it, I think that's going to be an imp further improvement to what athletes are seeing and then understanding how they react to fueling in these training sessions. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's spot on. I th and and I think like the other thing, and I don't know if you want to talk about this one, but the Alexandra Coates study, like, you know, I was reading yeah. through it and it's, I think it's super interesting. I mean, there was a couple of things in it that I thought were very interesting. And I don't know what your take on it was, but like, yeah, this, I mean, do you want to explain what the study was? Like, just so the, the listeners yeah. know, because I thought it was pretty interesting. Yes. Yeah. Basically, uh, we've got a blog coming out on this, uh, so I'll try and publish that. Uh, in and around when this comes out, if it's not already live by then. But there's a study done, and we're trying to get uh, Alex onto the podcast. But her and her, her group looked at a group of athletes. They induced overreaching. So, for context, there's, I guess, appropriate training. And then if you train too much, you get to a stage of overreaching. And then you get to, you know, if that prolongs, you get to a stage of overtraining. So, they induced overreaching in a subset of, in a set of athletes wearing CGM, and they started to see. Something that we've seen anecdotally, and you could explain physiologically as well, which is like a lower glucose, basically. And the glucose was then less reactive as well. So when we say that, it's um, when you would anticipate seeing an increase in glucose with and, and heart rate, you didn't see that. So, And that speaks to some of the, the classic overtraining over type studies. So that's effectively what, what was seen. Yeah, I mean... 
what was it? It was five weeks. It was five weeks. One week's of reduced yeah. training, three weeks of high intensity, and then one week. And they did these submax tests in between and a 5K yep. time trial as well. So they did a submax cycle test. Yep. And they looked at this, you know, overreaching, which, you know, I'm sure most coaches want to achieve some form of overreaching because they believe that's what creates yep. adaptation. So I guess the yep. thing I was trying to get my head around is, okay, so they've identified with CGMs that, after this three-week period of overreaching high-intensity training for three weeks, um, and then they they looked at they couldn't get their heart rate up, and they had reduced glucose utilization. Was it was it the and is it the combination of the inability to get lactate and heart rate up in conjunction with the carbohydrate utilization that sort of showed that? Uh, overreaching state was it the combination of all three that they're hypothesizing as a potential uh, measurement system that could be used yeah i think it's hard to know i think there are two ways you could think about it one way is can we detect overreaching and then use that information on a wearable right insert wearable here be it rings or watches or whatever because that would be ideal right and this is what people are trying to use hrv for this is what people are trying to do all those things so can we detect overreaching so that we have that data point we either know that we've induced it as a coach and that's our goal and we know if it's prolonged or it wasn't the goal now we've induced it this is a problem let's pull back right because what you're really looking for is am i applying appropriate load because we apply an external load kilometers time whatever and we we get an internal load as a result of whatever, call it, you know, that training plus heat plus nutrition, whatever other stimuli, life stress, two kids under two, whatever it is. And so then is the external load causing the internal load I was thinking or not? That's really what we're trying to get to. That's the holy grail. And I think it's probably a combination of lactate. I think that's the the elephant in the room in many respects with CGM because lactate itself can be converted into glucose. And I think some of what we're seeing on glucose uh, and CGMs is actually lactate that is being converted to that, which is not an irrelevant factor, but it's it's a different thing to consider versus say mobilization of glycogen or intake of carbohydrates. So yeah, what you're saying I think is if we see an increase, a lack of increase in glucose, is that really a lack of increase in lactate rather than any glucose issues. And, and that could well be that. Because, I mean, one of the things I was reading, and that, that's the thing, like they said the reduction in RER was indicative of reduced utilization of carbohydrates, but did they see an increase in fat utilization at the end of those three weeks as well? I guess that's where I was like, some might look at that change in RER in uh, the reduced carb and maybe increased fat is actually a positive adaptation to it. So I guess, uh, you know, I was interested in whether they looked at that or whether they're just saying, again, is it sort of if this and this and this, then it could be something for coaches to utilize. And I think it's like one of those ones, isn't it? It was only done on 11 people. Um, you know, yeah. Yeah. how tightly controlled was the nutritional intake and all that. I know they applied a nutritional intervention with 50 grams of carbs before the submax and the max test, but what did the total yeah. energy intake look like across uh, the duration of the five weeks? Where Was it ensuring that they weren't in anywhere near low energy availability or caloric deficit? And 
you know, just, and maybe, you know, I probably need to read the study in far more detail, but uh, they were the sort of questions I had for, um, for uh, Alexandra Coates and, and their team. But, but yeah, very interesting, I think... I think, because if it, if it is the possibility to now think about CGMs in this manner, like now you're getting away from, oh, okay, it's just about like fueling for a race and understand, like looking at your levels, are you optimal? And I, that's all done beforehand. Now you're using a CGM in potentially a completely different manner to actually uh, assess like your adaptation to some high volume training and then how you're going to respond after that and how to manage that athlete appropriately, which I think that's very interesting to me. Yeah. And I think it also alludes a little bit to the, it was a paper I I wrote about it. It's on our blog. Um, But like the, the linking between overtraining and under fueling and perhaps that, you know, some of the, some of what causes overtraining per se might just be under recovery or under fueling or all of the above. And there's probably some common pathways here because we do see in under fueling the the signal from CGM seems to be very similar to this induced uh, overreaching. Those signals look pretty similar. It's hard to discern. And so the question is, well, are they common pathways? Are we seeing the same thing on CGM? And when you talk to athletes, you know, Lisa Norden was one of them who spoke to us ages ago. She's been using CGM since like 2012 or something because of this. She notices when she underfuels, she gets low glucose overnight and it's very flat. And if that's all she needs to make sure she's got a, like a check and balance in place, then awesome. And I think Stellingworth, uh, Trent Stellingworth's group is probably- That was a paper. You're, you're yeah. referring to. Yeah. So they've got a lovely uh, diagram and we actually use that diagram in quite a few Q&As and we do um, obviously reference Trent and his group, but- you're exactly right. Like does overtraining syndrome, well, does it exist? I guess in that, is it, is it a syndrome or is it a consequence? Is it a consequence of, as you say, low energy availability? And then again, is that underpinning like all this on top of, you know, high training intensity volume and all that, but is it always, yeah. And it's not always, but I think low energy availability does play a very significant role in most things that go wrong with athletes. Yep. Alrighty, should we get to the rush rounds, Island? I think so. Yeah, a few uh, quick fire questions to wrap this up, Scott. How do you take your coffee? Ooh, long black. Yeah, I like it. Good man. Black coffee, yeah, black uh, like your heart. I long, it. long black, but I, I will. I'll be counted by. I can hear Melissa going. That's BS. I drink <laughs> flat whites as well. I do drink. A lot <laughs> is, of is there a? <laughs> That that David Beckham meme is coming to mind. Be yeah, honest, yeah, tell the truth. Yeah. Tell the truth. <laughs> I, I drink. I tell you what. How do I take my coffee in copious amounts? Um, so yeah. yeah, I drink way too much coffee. Actually, do you know what? Um, oh, now it's gonna. David, you should know this. What are they called when you have? Uh, is it nocturnal? Uh, what are they called? They're like spasms at night. Uh, oh yeah, jerks. Um, uh, twitching jerks. Yeah. Hip yes. jerks. Uh, so I, yeah. I suffer, unfortunately, from hypnic jerks. And uh, it sounds terrible, but um, my, my partner, Melissa, was like, obviously, I was up one night kicking her and spasming out in bed whilst I'm fully asleep. And she's obviously Googling in the middle of the night. And then she's like, one of the causes of hypnic jerks is caffeine consumption or excessive caffeine consumption. And 
I uh, was then told to severely reduce my caffeine consumption and it actually stopped me from having these hypnic jerks at night. So it is, um, yeah, there's definitely a bit of causation there and I try and limit it to three cups a day now. Do you have a cutoff? Do you have a cutoff at a time of day when you have your last one? Yeah, I'm pretty. I wear an aura ring, and I'm a bit obsessed with just a couple of little stats on there: my HRV and my total sleep hours and resting heart rate. And so, I I certainly try and keep it to around twelve o'clock. My last uh, last cup of coffee. That's about the time that Zalan starts drinking cappuccinos just to kill all the Italians <laughs> he's around. So. Uh, I'm sure. Favorite pre-workout food? Is it those overnight oats you mentioned? Uh, that would be for a big race. Otherwise, piece of toast and usually raisin okay. toast. That's my go-to. Favorite favorite carbo-loading food? For a race? Uh, well, white rice, white rice, sweet chili sauce or white rice and uh, white rice and maple syrup. They're my go-to and throw in some rice I bubbles in there as well. <laughs> promise you, I promise you I will not be trying that. I I can tell you now when I did have uh, a CGM where I was actually looking at it when I was using the uh, Super Sapiens app, I can tell you now I had some pretty severe glucose spikes uh, when I was consuming rice bubbles with maple syrup. But thankfully, normal response, it came back down as would be expected uh, within a a fairly short period of time. So I wasn't too concerned, but amazing to see nonetheless. And so... Post Oceanside or post Sydney or post next big race. Like what's your favorite post uh, race food? A beer. <laughs> definitely. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely have a beer post race because I've usually abstained from uh, some alcohol for a period of time. Do that. And then it's usually some form of pizza. I just have this sort of craving for uh, pizza. I don't know what it is. Absolutely nothing sweet for as long as possible, given all the oh, carb load in the, in the workout in the yeah. Yeah, it's hard to it is it is hard to even get your head around having anything sweet after a race, isn't it? Like you're like I'm nah. never touching sugar again. <laughs> yeah. I'm like give me some Thai food or some Chinese food or something. I had really post Boston Marathon we found this unbelievable Chinese restaurant in the bottom of some place, no windows, and it was just all assault and I was so happy. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much, Scott. It's been awesome. Loved having you. I really appreciate it. Obviously, we already plugged the webinar you will be having on protein. So please, if you have, uh, hopefully, I know it will have already happened by the time this has gone out. So go back and listen to that. I'm sure it'll be available via Fuelin's channels. Uh, You and I will do a webinar on your CGM data from Sydney. So if you're interested in that, please join for that as well. And if you are listening to this after that, I'm sure that'll be available as well. So go back and listen to us talking through Scott's CGM data from Sydney and otherwise follow Scott along in his sub three hour attempt in uh, later this year. You're putting me under the pump now, Dave. This is, uh, this is actually slightly concerning. The idea of running uh, that fast is actually terrifying. Nah, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Oh, Scott, wonderful having you here. The, the indication of a good chat is always the duration, and this has been a long one, which shows I think we've all enjoyed it. And thanks so much for everything that you've shared. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, really, truly enjoyable chat. And uh, I'm sorry if I've taken up way too much of your time uh, today and tonight. But uh, thank you so much it's, for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. It's morning for us. It's morning for us, Scott, so it doesn't bother us at all. It's like you're the one who's at nighttime, so I appreciate you.
No, thank you so much, guys. Really, really enjoyable. There we go. Scott Tyndall, David. Um, one of the things he was talking about, and I saw you early in the podcast get very visibly animated and excited, was when he started talking about blood flow restriction. Yeah, blood flow restriction training, sometimes called KATSU, C, uh, sorry, K-A-A-T-S-U. Uh, it's really interesting, really old form of training from Japan, or not that old, but but relatively old, a lot older than most people would give it credit for. Um, effectively occludes part of the blood flow back from the leg, not to the leg, because uh, arterial flow, the stuff that goes out to the leg uh, or arm, is much stronger than the venous return pressure. So it it basically creates pooling of um, metabolic products there and creates stress and all those sort of things. And you can't lift as heavy with it, but it creates interesting adaptations in terms of hypertrophy and, and metabolic signaling around that. So there's some really cool research on elderly, as he mentioned, in walking, but there's also some really interesting applications for injury, as he mentioned, and then athletes as well, potentially to gain some size. Now, most endurance athletes would be like, the worst thing I could possibly do is gain size and, you know, being phobic of that. But um, we haven't got research on this, but given the signaling molecules, giving some of that, I think there could be a role where it creates some peripheral adaptation, some of the stuff that takes longer to develop, like capillarization, better blood flow to the peripheries. And I wonder if there's, yeah, I wonder if we'll see a role of that in a little while. So let's see. I'm bullish on it though. I had made a comment to him about um, me noticing, yeah, both part of my squad where I often don't see people, um, I often see people not fueling during the swim, particularly if there's no bottle at the end of the lane. Um, he then you know, made a very interesting comment about his inefficient swimming versus one of his, the output of one of the athletes, one of the pro athletes he coaches, efficient swimming. Yeah, I mean... So there's the efficiency is how well you move in the water and that's one part of it. But then there's the energy expenditure as a result of being in the water. And I don't think people acknowledge this, uh, that we lose so much heat to water. This is why being in cold water is so dangerous in terms of um, losing your life because water conducts heat better than air does. So you can lose heat quicker. So if the water is any colder than you, you can lose a lot of heat and maintaining body temperature is costly from an energetic standpoint. Um, so his point was you burn a lot of energy in the water, partially because we move inefficiently through it as humans, but secondarily because we lose a lot of heat to water as humans. This is why things like polar bears have got insulation and all that stuff. And you hear these things of people who are going to swim the English channel, trying to put on a bunch of body fat, those sort of things so that you can be float better, be more insulated, etc., etc., etc. He also had some interesting insight with regards to why he thinks low-carb diets are so successful and adopted so quickly up front. Yeah, well, it's, it's, his point was the flywheel, and we mentioned this with Andrew Kutnick um, in our podcast there actually, is initial success in a diet creates a flywheel of success and then you buy in more and double down on it. And his postulation, and I think a lot of people would agree with this, is that with low carb diets that you lose weight really quickly in the initial phases. And the reason you lose weight is because you're losing glycogen stores. And as a result, water, because water is stored with each molecule of water is stored or each gram of, sorry, each gram of glycogen is stored with a couple of grams, two to three grams of water. So for each 
insert amount of glycogen, which is probably as you go low carb, it's probably going to be 500, well, it's probably going to be a couple of kilos you lose of glycogen really quickly. You also lose a couple of kilos of water. So you can see this really rapid shift to a low glycogen, low, and as a result, low water state in the body. That's not to say you dehydrate, but that's to say that you don't need to store it that way. And therefore you lose a bunch of scale weight really quickly, which is one of the fallacies of the scale. Uh, it's also one of the things you'll see when you're carb loading is the opposite. The scale will go up and that's intended. It's also part of how you may not need to drink 100% of losses during an event because you are liberating water as well. So it's not to say you don't need to focus on hydration or any of those things, but you do create, like there is some water that is stored in your body that is liberated when you're burning glycogen. So interesting, man. Um, the last thing I wanted to touch on that he was talking about was research. Um, I think like you alluded to, there's a lot of research into um, reactions and things we know in the short term, but not so much in the long term, the, the effect it has on things in the long term. Yeah, this is something I was thinking about a little bit during the podcast. We, you know, insert intervention here whatever it is, blood flow restriction or diet or whatever, right? So we, we see this response. You, we measure it for X amount of time and good studies do it longer and you know these things are hard to do or whatever. But we sort of have this idea of what it looks like in the short term. But the compounding effect of that or the long-term effects are really hard because we don't see it. And so there may be benefit to it right now. Thinking from an endurance standpoint, Scott was really big on like understanding that this is a long-term thing. You should be trying to train for years. You should be trying to train for, uh, you know, perform in years, not in weeks, much to his personal uh, digression in terms of his own behaviors. But, you know, if we fat oxidation, for instance, fat oxidation can take a long time and there are ways to augment it. This is something he mentioned in the short term, but I wonder if there is a more robust maintenance to it, perhaps, if you do it in a longer time frame. And that's one example, and it's probably flawed. But what I'm getting at is another example might be supplementation. We might say that, or protein intake, or fiber intake. We sort of have this short-term thing, and we say, okay, we see this. But actually, what's the impact of that over a long term? It might be that it compounds, and it's 10x different. And it's just so hard for us to see that signal through some of the noise. So yeah, I think... Hopefully we're getting there in the research world in terms of the ability to track this stuff, but it feels like we aren't. Yeah, well, thank you once again to Scott Sindel for coming on, Chief Nutrition Officer at Fuelin. Um, what a guy, what a chat. And as I said, offline, that's, that chat could have been five hours. Just There was just so much more we could still dive into, and we might actually have him back on the podcast at some stage. If you enjoyed that, please share it with a friend, rate the podcast as well. Um, we cannot do this without you. We alluded to Magnus, one of our listeners, sending us an, a question. He emailed david at supersapiens.com. We answered a bit of his question. We'll do that in another episode as well. So please, please let us know anything you'd like us to discuss, anything you'd like us to go through, and anything you'd like to learn, email david at supersapiens.com. We are also on Discord. You can join the Super Sapiens Discord channel. Thank you for your time, David. Thank you, mate, and we'll talk soon.